Welcome to the Learning Laborers Podcast, where we are passionate about integrating scholarship and ministry experience. Welcome, learning laborers. It's uh, good to have you on the podcast again. Uh, today, we're going to do kind of the, the one-on-one format again, where I'm going to interview Taylor, ask some questions about a topic he's been studying recently, and it's kind of in a more historical vein of uh, investigation and information. So um, we're going to be looking at the political history of Israel and of the Jewish people from in like the Second Temple period. So kind of in between the two testaments, I think what scholars used to call the intertestamental period, but yeah. now mostly called the second temple period. Well, the worst label for it is the silent years. I don't know if you ever heard it called the, the silent, silent years. years, which they were not silent. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of like the, how people used to call the the middle ages or the dark ages. Yeah. That even though there's all kinds of stuff going on. There's a ton of stuff. So but, yeah. Yeah. So maybe just talk about what you've been studying, how it relates to your larger project, your doctoral project that you're working on. Yeah, it took me a while to really settle into what my topic was going to be. I actually ran down a few different streams uh, quite significantly before I've (laughs) gotten back on this course. Um, But I'm I'm working on this topic of politics. And I want to look at how the gospel creates an alternative politic and explore what that means for the church and politics today. Um, So we can get into that topic another time. But part of my research entailed summarizing the political context of Judea in the first century. Because I think if we want to look to Scripture as a model for how it gives um, political prescriptions or how it um, gives training around political navigation, we have to put that in its biblical context, right? The the political climate and context of the New Testament is a lot different from the political context today. And then, you know, especially in America where I'm focusing. But in order to get into the political context, I had to start summarizing that political context of Judea in the first century. And so in order to do that, I decided to kind of stretch back to the beginning of what's called the Second Temple period, um, which begins around uh, Israel's exile in 586 B.C., and stretches to the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 AD. So roughly about 600 years. And I said, well, I probably should summarize this period. <laughs> it's a big chunk of time to summarize. Yeah, so I, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot, and I've been reading <laughs> so much about it, so it's almost like, uh, I don't know if this is a good idea to put a microphone in front of me and have yeah. to talk about what it, but I'll do my best to kind of summarize what I found. Um, in in my most recent paper, I tried my best to summarize the Jewish history of that period, and I just learned a ton. Like I I'm learning so much, and I've been studying the Bible for a long time. Um, but one of the things I realized is how much I just didn't know about this time period mm-hmm. or about Jewish history in general. Um. I was digesting so much of this material, and I I rarely heard it explained in seminary as, um, or the church, especially. Uh, um, and then I realized how important it is for studying the New Testament because at the same time I was studying this, I was also teaching through Luke with our people, 
And yeah. it was amazing just things that would rise to the surface of like, oh, I understand kind of what's going on here a little bit better. Yeah. I understand some of the dynamics at work here. Um, so things are just clicking and making much more sense as I read the New Testament. And we'll talk a little bit about those things like, you know, uh, tax collectors or why the trial of Jesus had all these different kind of parts to it and appealing to this person, that person. Sure. Um, but stuff was just jumping off the page. So I realized how much I didn't know how important it was for the New Testament. And then collectively, as a pastor and teacher, I realized we need to figure out a way to distill this into churches. Yeah. Like we need to figure out a way to give people some historical background to the New Testament so that we can just increase biblical fluency and ultimately spiritual formation. As we're able to read the text better and get a better idea of what was important and shocking in the New Testament, I think it will help us, you know, uh, be better formed by that New Testament. So, yeah, so I just think this is a big gap for people. Um, and, I mean, sometimes it's even labeled as a gap, right? Like, as you said, uh, the intertestamental okay. period, it's literally labeled a gap. Yeah, <laughs> but there's so much happening that informs the context of the New Testament. Yeah. And like you said, it doesn't just make us better students of the Bible, but it helps us to apply the Bible better today. If we want to go to the Bible for wisdom about how to engage in politics today, I'm sure a lot of pastors, missionaries, ministers uh-huh. find themselves asking that question, um, how do I lead my people on this topic? Or maybe maybe they're tempted to just avoid it completely or they hear the word politics <laughs> and they just sigh. Um, but if we want to go to the Bible for wisdom about it, you know, kind of with any topic, we can't just pluck verses out and and just, uh-huh. you know, force them into today's context. But we have right. to understand them in their own political context, and that'll help us gain wisdom for how we live out the kingdom of Jesus in our own context, right. our own political context. And like you said, there's a lot going on in this, this period of time uh-huh. uh, between the closing of the Old Testament canon, as we would say, and the beginning of the New Testament canon. But there's still mm-hmm. literature being written, right. history is happening, rulers are coming and going. And I think for the purpose of this podcast, since the closer we get to the New Testament times, kind of the more immediate the relevance of what's happening becomes for the writers of the New Testament, maybe to get through that 600 years, we'll kind of go in broad strokes, if that's okay with you, for the first kind of part of it. And then the closer we get to the New Testament, can get kind of slow down and get into the details more. Yeah, we can try to get more granular or yeah. uh, you know, tie some more implications. Now, what's interesting is because this was such a big project to summarize history, I didn't get necessarily with my research so far into the implications of the New Testament. Like I've got some of the weeds and the details of the, what's going yeah. on historically, but I haven't been able to draw a ton of yeah. New Testament implications. But I think the seeds... Well, and maybe we can start teasing some of those out in this yeah. conversation. Yeah, maybe you could oh, help yeah. me do that, Denver. Help and you listeners, you can... Send us an email with your insights. <laughs> that would be help, great. Help Taylor, help Taylor finishes doctoral research. There we go. Yeah. So maybe just begin then. Take us from, let's say, exile in Babylon to Roman occupation. Yes. Kind of takes to that period of time. Yeah, so uh, I'll try to do a flyover here and 
again, we can get into the weeds of a lot of information and I'm still in the weeds a little bit, but I'll do my best to kind of summarize implications and significance as we go. But um, if you know the kind of uh, the history of Kings and Chronicles, whichever one you prefer, I guess, uh-huh. um, yeah. you know, Israel's um, kind of dynasty and nation gets sent into exile in 586 due to idolatry and a lot of things, a lack of covenant faithfulness, and they get brought into um, exile by Babylon in 586. It's only a few decades later, though, that that Babylon is defeated by Persia. So the Persian era really starts um, about 70 years or so later after their exile. And what's great about that is Cyrus, the leader of Persia at that time, issues this decree for them to return to their land and rebuild their temple. And this is kind of how Persia operated. This was part of a wider kind of propaganda campaign on the part of Cyrus to legitimize his seizure of power and secure the loyalty of new subjects. And so what he granted was a lot of local autonomy. And this was a big win for Israel to come out of exile and return to their land. Um, Now, it almost take about 100 years for reforms like Ezra and Nehemiah that we know in the scriptures to take place. Um, But Israel, I mean, this is a a glimmer of hope on the horizon for them to return to their national prosperity. There's a lot of hopes still kind of held out. They're still under a superpower, which wouldn't be ideal by any stretch of the imagination, but it's better than they were um, in Babylon. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that's a pretty much like there's not a lot of data on the Persian Empire and how they interacted, the uh, Jewish people interacted during this time. There's a few things that are, are put together, but the general sentiment is hopeful, Local yeah. autonomies granted again, and they're looking forward to full restoration in the future. Yeah. Yeah. And do you so, see a lot of influence from Persian, let's say, like theology and worldview? Oh, that's on, interesting. Into the, the Jewish worldview? Yeah, that's a debate. Um, <laughs> I'm going to say that a lot, probably. That's a debate because we don't have a ton of uh, documentation. Yeah. Um, it's. You know, there's a lot of speculation about, I think it's called Zoroastrianism in the Persian yep. world. Mm-hmm. Like how much influence there is on Jewish people, even the New Testament writers, there's some interesting ties to Zoroastrianism yeah. or even the Magi uh, and stuff like that. Uh-huh. Anyway. But um, yeah, the, it wasn't so much of a syncretistic moment as we'll see with say the Greek period. Okay. Um, it was still more of, you can have your culture. You can have your local autonomy when, at least when we compare it to what happens with the Greek culture. So Babylon is pretty much setting out to crush the culture of whoever they're taking over, including the people of Israel. You get to the Persians, they're more interested in kind of encouraging the flourishing of of different cultures and Uh religious practices as a way of kind of gaining favor with the people that send them tribute and things like that. You get to Greek culture and, you know, maybe this is skipping ahead, but they're kind of trying to export their culture yes, to the places that they um, have taken over. So there'd be more influence in that period on, on the Jewish people. Yep, that's a good anticipation of where we're going here. I mean, Persia thrives for about two centuries um, until the time of 
Alexander the Great and the Greeks and their famous conquest of the world. <laughs> yeah. So in about 331 BC, uh, Jerusalem was brought under Greek rule by Alexander the Great. And mm-hmm. uh, really that is when the the whole world is becoming Greek and Hellenized in a lot of ways. Um, but it's shortly after, just like well, almost like a decade, uh, Alexander dies and his kingdom is divided or fought over by his successors, uh, his generals. And it's a pretty chaotic time. There's uh, a few different generals that try to seize the kingdom. Um, and uh, the one, the two largest players are the Ptolemies from Egypt and the Seleucids from Syria. The Ptolemies take control in about 301 BC, and they rule for about 100 years. Um, and they're going to function very similar to the Persian era. They want to give local autonomy, Mm-hmm. Um, they want the the Jewish people and other people that they kind of subjugated to have that local autonomy and that preservation of their native identity. But something that the Greeks do introduce has a lot of ramifications. And that what they do is they start to set up Greek cities across their empire. Mm-hmm. Okay. So they start to set up these kind of like um, microcosms of Athens all over their empire. Like new cities. New cities. And because they have such ties to um, Athens and just Greek culture, they thrive. Mm. They're thriving cities. And so it became um, a really apropos kind of uh, alliance to be in with these Greek cities. Does that make sense? Like yeah. if they're a thriving city and you want to you know, get better in commerce or grow economically, especially the elites, mm-hmm. you would do business with these Greek cities. Okay. And so with that, Greek culture became much more um, important to thriving under Greek subjugation than, say, the Persians. Okay, so that's kind of the added degree of Greek influence in society. It wasn't necessarily an imposition on these cultures. It was just reasonable. Because the whole world is becoming Greek, because economic prosperity was tied to Greek culture, mm-hmm. um, that interaction became all the more important. Um, I think Cohen, in his book, From uh, Maccabees to the Mishnah, talks about it wasn't a, a, a question as to whether or not the Jewish people became Hellenized. The question was, how did they become Hellenized and how far would they go? Yeah, to what degree? To what degree. Um, so this was a big big moment um, for the Jewish world to kind of, how do you interact with Greek culture? Um, And again, this is a hotly debated issue as to whether, and and I'll say this, because when you read the rabbinic period, which is in like the fourth century, there's a lot of hostility to Greek culture. Um, And when you read about the Maccabees, there seems to be a lot of hostility to the Greek culture. but I think it's questionable whether or not there was a ton of hostility, especially among the common people, sure, um, towards Greek culture. And in fact, we see a lot of evidence in the contrary, like adaptations of Greek culture, architecture, language, right? We get the Septuagint, a Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible during this time. And then the New Testament will be written in Greek. Right. I mean, so, so there seems to be a large amount of evidence that says, no, the Jews were navigating this in kind of a uh, reasonable way, and they were taking on a lot of Hellenistic um, aspects, but yet they did retain their native identity. And I don't know if uh, Greek culture really 
um, pressured them to move away from their native identity and core beliefs like monotheism or Torah observance or um, temple-centered worship. I think those, those remained intact for the most part, especially under the Ptolemies um, from 300 to 200. So that process of Hellenization, would you say there's it's different in a essential way from the kind of syncretism that was going on before the Babylonian exile that the prophets of Ooh. Israel were calling out? So yeah. they're calling out people for, you know, taking in the gods of the Canaanites or... Um, right, the gods of the the Philistines or of Babylon, um, that kind of syncretism. Is this something kind of different, substance uh, of different substance? Yeah, I don't think it verges on the on the sense of idolatry. Okay, um, I I do. But, think... But there's critics who did think that critics. I think once you get into the Maccabean period, this is what we're okay. going to see with with the Hasmoneans. That's okay. Yeah, that's where we're going. Start things. There starts to be some pressure points. How exactly the pressure points develop is contested. Um, but what we do know is that once the Seleucids gain control in about 200 BC, there's um, Antiochus IV Epiphanes. It's kind of a famous character if you know anything about the mm-hmm. Maccabees or the Hasmoneans. Um, he, he starts to impose decrees on Jerusalem that the Jews cease their own worship rituals and become cooperative in kind of a unifying religious political vision with the Seleucids. Now, there's a lot of questions as to why Antiochus IV imposed this decree. There may have even been um, some Jewish uh, internal discussion about this, and maybe there were some Jewish players that wanted to be more syncretistic. And so Antiochus Antiochus IV is like playing mm-hmm. on that Jewish um, group to kind of win their alliances and stuff. Again, all of this stuff can splinter off in a lot of different directions. But the point is a major pressure point between Greek culture or Greek empire and the Jewish people and their core identity of monotheism and sacrifices to the, the temple and Torah observance are being threatened. And this is where you start to see uh, the Maccabees um, start to come into play. So to kind of use a, maybe a quaint analogy, the period of the Persians and then of the Ptolemies, you have maybe, we could look at like a like a buffet, like they bring this buffet of the <laughs> things from their culture and their, their worldview and the Jewish yeah. people are allowed to kind of figure out the things that... Uh-huh you know, don't necessarily compromise their own worldview, but that yeah. they can, the things that are kosher, maybe we could say. <laughs> then they, Sure, yeah. But then <laughs> the Seleucids come, Antiochus IV, and he's not just saying, you know, pick the things you want from right. culture, but saying you got to stop um, eating the things you're eating and you got to eat everything that's in our buffet and it's more of a, a forced right. kind of transition, is that? Would that be a, a apt analogy? Yeah, <laughs> maybe, sure. maybe, I, maybe I'm just hungry. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe. But no, yeah, I think there was a an opt-in, opt-out characterization of the Jewish people during those times. Okay. And this is actually, there's a good case to be made that this is where you find the Jewish factions start to develop in navigating how much Hellenistic culture do you want to you be involved in. Um, 
Because what we know now, I mean, is that there wasn't really a Judaism uh, during this time. There were Judaisms, right? There was a diversity of Jewish opinion. They weren't all the same. And you had factions, the major ones being like the Pharisees, the Sadducees, um, the Qumran community. Um, Herodians are in there somewhere. You know, we had different kind of factions of Jewish belief and practice that were developing. And I think a lot of what separated them was how to navigate Hellenistic culture, how to develop the, or or how to um, respond to that opt-in, opt-out uh, culture. I think a good case can be made for that. So the Hasmoneans come on the scene, kind of explain that point of tension and what sparked all that. Yeah, so Antiochus IV issues this decree that they sh- that the Jews should give up particular customs. Um, this is the opening of 1 Maccabees. If you haven't read 1 Maccabees or 2 Maccabees, the book of Maccabees, this is a, where a lot of this data is pulled from. Um, mm-hmm. But you see that he wants uh, the Jewish people to give up their customs. And um, what you see is some Jews cooperated. Mm-hmm. But the priest, Mattathias, pronunciation is going to be rough <laughs> as we yeah. start to get into these names. But uh, one refused. Um, and so this Hellenization of Israel reached this pivotal moment and it and it came time to demonstrate a conflicting loyalty. And Mattathias not only refused, but he struck down and killed a Jew who was going to accommodate. Make a sacrifice. Yeah. So he killed the king's delegate, destroyed the altar there, and this kind of sparked revolution um, for religious and national freedom. So this is the big thing that I... So war starts to to happen, and uh, this is where the Maccabees come from. It's this group that grows an army and goes to battle with the Seleucids. Um, really, in in response to this, and amazingly, they start to win. <laughs> like it's, it's like quite an interesting thing. But what's happening here um, is they're seeking political autonomy in a way that... Um, in the past, they would have been fine probably to to deal without. So during the Persian and the Greek era, they had local autonomy with a temple state, um, but they kind of left the bigger matters, you know, uh, military autonomy to the big superpower in charge. Sure. Now, as that pressure started to come and infringe on their identity and their local autonomy, they fought back and they win. Um, but then there was this moment where they they sought a greater independence level. Uh-huh. The Hasmoneans, they they protect basically their Jewish practice. They respond to um, the decree from uh, Antiochus. And yet they go further and they're going to start seeking more political independence on a larger level. They start to expand their territory. They start to, you know, conquer um, or overtake some some people in the north with the Samaritans, they destroy their yeah. temple, force them to convert to Judaism. They go down to the Edomans in the south, uh, who are linked back to Esau and the Edomites, force their conversions, and then they start to destroy some of those Greek cities. Um, and so they're expanding militarily in a way that maybe not all Jews cared for. Yeah. Like, there's a case that can be made that some Jews were like, look, we got our practice back. We got our native identity back. We don't need to go on this kind of political campaign. Yeah, maybe overplaying their hand. Right. And so, again, some more tension points. Um, 
develop there uh, internally with the Jewish people. And um, yeah, that was a big kind of moment for them with Maccabees. Uh, they would call this like um, another Davidic, Davidic type vision that was achieved. Yeah. Like linking it to the Davidic monarchy time, like they're restoring national um, independence again. And did they have genealogical ties to the Davidic line or no? They did not. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This was another, another thing was like, so local autonomy for the Jewish people was ruled through the high priest and the high priest had to have a certain lineage. Um, Sanders in his book on Judaism practice and belief does a really good job highlighting that, like the high priest and how that was really a big part of it. Um, but the Maccabees have this ambiguous relationship to high priest lineage and they start to take on the role of high priest and then they start to slip into also taking on the rule of king, uh, which was new. And what you start to see is um, the Hasmonean and Maccabean rulers, while they achieve complete autonomy, which is a huge deal, and a big win, like some people liken that to like an Exodus type moment for Israel again. In what year is this? Uh, 142 is the watershed okay. moment where complete autonomy was was um, achieved. So they've been fighting for a couple decades. Yep, they cleanse the temple. That's where Hanukkah comes from. I kind of skipped over that 164 BC. And then they keep and they're expanding their territory to achieve complete autonomy but then they start to slip into these forced conversions and they're they're turning into brutal leaders okay and the question is really like is this what the the nation of israel is supposed to look like because they're looking just like their former subjugators Mm -hmm. who are brutal in their leadership taking on you know this role of king as well as high priest and um it starts to to get really dicey and the Hasmonean dynasty is in power for how long? Um, after you have a big a big ruler named Alexander die, his wife Salome actually takes over in like 76 BC. Okay. And because she's a woman, she can't take the high priesthood. So um, she starts to delegate stuff to her sons. Um, and uh, when she dies, there's this fraternal feud that's struck okay. up between her two sons, Hyrcanus II and Aristobulus II. And this is what Josephus attributes to the later Roman subjugation. He says because there's so much internal fighting among the Hasmoneans, um, between these two brothers specifically, Rome is able to come in and just kind of demolish them. I, I mean, Rome could probably do that anyway. <laughs> yeah. I think necessarily. But there was such instability during that time that uh, Rome's able to come in, and that's in 63 BC. So that's, that's technically when the Hasmonean era is over and Roman subjugation begins. So 63 BC, Pompey rolls into town and he's he allies himself with one of those sons, right? Mm-hmm, Hyrcanus. Okay, and he takes over. Yep. Says Rome is running the show now. Yeah, so what's interesting, um, and, and I, in my paper, I thought it was valuable to say, okay, as soon as Roman subjugation happens, you really need to kind of back up and see what's happening in Rome to understand how this plays in in um, Judea. So you're going to walk us through 600 years of <laughs> Roman history. And now- <laughs> yeah, no. Just kidding. I can't do that. But uh, before the Hasmonean era in Israel, I mean, Romans rule is, is expanding and it's spreading throughout all the lands, especially the ones kind of neighboring Israel. 
And you have to remember, Israel was such an important piece of land to controlling this area. It was like a land bridge. Yeah. You know, that was constantly fought over. Um, so Rome finally defeats um, the Egyptians, the Carthaginians, if you're familiar with that at all. And they're expanding into Macedon and Syria. And as the Hasmoneans were fighting for Jewish independence, Rome had become this important ally for the Hasmoneans to defeat Syria. So the Hasmoneans actually linked up with Rome in order to to fight off the Syrians. But once Pompey finally gained victory over the Syrians in like 64 BC, like he defeats the Syrians, uh, things would change. Yeah. So Rome grew, Hyrcanus II, Aristobulus II, knew that they needed to both appeal to Rome now that Syria was, you know, basically defeated. And um, Rome sides with Hyrcanus II, um, really based off of the um, recommendation of this guy named Antipater. And Antipater is the uh, kind of father of the genealogy of what we'll come to know as the Herods. Okay. Okay, so we see... (laughs) I wish we had a visual... So I can kind of start piecing these lines together. But does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And at the time, who is he? Like, what's his role or position? Why does he have the ear of Rome? Yeah, that's a really good question. So he was, um, he's from Idumea, which is one of those converted, those places that were forcibly converted in the Hasmonean conquest. Um, and he had just gained in political power there. And as, um, as he saw, he was a very politically like savvy guy. Okay. And as he saw a ways to gain power, he just made friendships in Rome. Um, so when it came time to kind of give his influence on the Judean situation, he sided with Hyrcanus, convinced Rome to do that, and Rome uh, kind of came in and granted uh, Hyrcanus II the high priesthood. Okay, so he kind of became Rome's client leader at that point? Yeah, Those so are, Antipater, Israel? yeah, well, yeah, Antipater or Hyrcanus, sorry. Hyrcanus becomes the high priest. Okay, which in effect is at that time the, the local political ruler. leader as well. Right. The local ruler. Okay. Yeah. Um, but one, there's some, some important things here about when Pompey marched on Rome, he also went in and entered the temple in the Holy of Holies. Marched on Jerusalem. Yeah, you know, when he marched on Jerusalem in 63 okay. BC. And so, Scholars make the point that this was um, a really uh, influential way for Rome to kind of like introduce themselves to Judea. And one of the ways that Rome uh, was kind of perceived was as this great enemy and an archetypal idolater. Like they are the empire of empires in a lot of ways. And so when you like there's there was like hostility with Rome kind of from the beginning. Just because of that. Like a new Babylon. Yeah, a new Babylon. I mean, all empires kind of fit that mold, but um, Rome, as they grew and became more and more in power, uh, they kind of became these archetypal um, idolaters and empire. And so what this means is the yoke of the Gentiles was again placed on Israel. They were again subjugated. Their autonomy is gone. Okay. And it marked the end of Jewish independence. So they would, the Israel people uh, would now be ruled by Rome and their proxies. And I mean, this was also a huge loss for the Hasmoneans 
uh, they would never recapture the throne. Mm-hmm. Their lineage would be basically ousted by the Herods. And um, yeah, that the centuries that followed would be marked by the subjugation of God's people under the Roman Empire. Okay. And that's kind of the the basic political mm-hmm. landscape when the New Testament writers right. are writing is under Roman rule through these, often through these proxy rulers. Uh-huh. Um, and I know each of the different regions kind of had a different relationship to Rome, but basically Rome is this kind of big superpower ruling through individuals that are local and people in recent memory can remember a time when they were independent and had right um, their own, you know, could make their own rules and they had their own ruler. And, and I guess you could even say when Jesus is born, it's still in living memory. There are probably some people around who were around uh, when the Hasmonean dynasty fell. Yeah, I, possibly. So it's not that long ago in the memory of the Jewish people, a time yeah. of independence, and now they're under Rome. Yeah, I think tensions, what you'll see is there was always kind of this tension of uh, revolution in the air mm-hmm. for the New Testament period. You even have some different revolutions start to spark up. Um, like Judas the Galilean as you get into the New Testament. But yeah, this this kind of like um, recent memory of independence haunts them as they're under this new subjugated Rome. And you brought it up, like, how did this exactly work? How did this rule kind of impress itself on the Jewish people? A few things to consider here. One was client kings and client rulers um, and governors for the different areas. And the guys that dominated that were the Herods. Mm-hmm. So this tells us what what the who the Herods were in the New Testament. They were client kings that represented Roman subjugation on the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Okay, so they they were not well liked people. Yeah, and an added flavor, Idumeans. Uh, yeah, so it, it, that that even their their genealogy goes back to the Idumeans, who have an ambiguous relationship to Judaism in the first place. Yeah, like they were forcibly converted to to being Jews. Like, that will be a constant question throughout. Like, how Jewish is Herod? It's very complicated. Yes, it is very complicated. Um, but there is a, another aspect of this that should be noted, and that is Rome brought about a golden age for this time period. I mean, so you had this whole kind of civil war happening in Rome in the background between Pompey and Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar wins out, and uh, but then he's assassinated in like 40-something B.C. Yeah. Um, and then there's this, another rivalry forms, mostly between um, Octavian and, um, oh goodness. Mark Antony. Mark Antony, thank you. And Cleopatra, yeah. Yeah, and Octavian wins out um, in 31 B.C., and the Roman Republic dies, and this new Roman Empire under the dictator of Augustus starts to thrive. Yeah. And as he starts to thrive, he brings this golden era yeah. to, to Rome and to the surrounding world. I mean, building projects out the wazoo, new technologies are making the economy boom, the population is, is um, you know, booming, and urbanization. And another thing that's happening here is uh, the imperial cult. 
Yeah. So when Antony and Octavian were in a battle for a civil war, okay, a lot of the near eight, a lot of people sided with Antony. Okay, a lot of like um, Asian cities and whatnot sided with Antony. So when Octavian won, they needed to to guys basically appeal to Octavian's rule. And the way they suggested to do that is to establish a cult in Octavian's name. Yeah. He was hesitant to accept it at first because it, it showed so much power and he was still sensitive to um, Rome being a republic and pertaining that or retaining that perception. But he basically allows it and you start to see that this was a way that political loyalties were secured in the Roman Empire was um, an adoption of the imperial cult. So actually worshiping the emperor. Emperor worship. Mm-hmm. Right. So Augustus would be, um, that's a new title that's given to him, Augustus, which means, um, oh goodness, it's like a, a glowing one. It has some divine, <laughs> it has some divine um, qualities to it anyway. So what this means, okay, uh, I'm trying to get to the significance here, <laughs> is Roman subjugation took on the pressures of two things specifically. One client rulership, mm-hmm. and that rulership was by an ambiguous Jewish rulership. Like, yeah. we don't really know that they had the, the Jewish interests in mind. Like, you have Herod who builds this awesome new temple, right? And, like, Jews celebrate it. They're like, oh, the temples were built and all this stuff. But, like, a lot of this was part of just a larger building campaign that Herod did across Judea. Yeah. That was really just flattery to Rome and imitation yeah. of Rome's building projects. So that was even like ambiguous. So you have Roman subjugation being um, proxied through ambiguous mm-hmm. Jewish interests. And then you have the imperial cult starting to bear down on the Jewish people. Like if you really want to show loyalty to Rome, you need to start worshiping or participating in emperor worship. Okay. And that will become more and more of a pressure point. Yeah. And at the same time, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but all the emperors that come after Augustus don't really measure up to Augustus. Totally, and, yep. And his kind of prestige and power and uh-huh. military might and all that kind of stuff. So I guess you could see how the Jewish people, you know, as the the power transitions to other emperors who aren't as impressive as Augustus, and you have in living memory a time of independence when uh-huh. uh, your people did throw off the yoke of of another power yeah. um, when the Hasmoneans um, defeated the Seleucids. You could see how there would be this growing anticipation and hope that, you know, if we got rid of the Seleucids, why can't we get rid of the Romans? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, just to kind of jump ahead a little bit, so now when you read that Jesus's gospel, the, his main message is the kingdom of God is here, <laughs> like it is loaded. Yeah. That is a loaded statement. Yeah. And no wonder Herod's like, uh, we got to get rid of this guy. Yeah. And you're the Greek expert. That word for kingdom is the same as word for, like we would say empire, right? It's all uh, Basileia. I'm the Greek right? expert. <laughs> Why would you say that? You know more than I yeah, do. Yeah, it is Basileia. Uh, which would, I guess, be used of empire. I, I haven't done a deep dive on this. But, I mean, it's political language. It is yeah, political yeah, yeah. language, for sure. Gospel is political language. That's a big part of my paper as well. So when he says, this is the good news. That's connected to Augustus, right? Yeah, Augustus, uh, there's a famous inscriptions when Augustus 
kind of comes to the throne, it's called a gospel, the beginning of the gospel. Um, and he's called a savior that is bringing about an era of peace and salvation. That's what a gospel was in the Roman world. And so yeah. when you have Mark 1, 1 start off the beginning of the gospel concerning Jesus, the Christ, which is Christ is a, a royal title, right? Like it, this is disruptive. I mean, this is a, yeah. this is a, a loaded polemical, um, sharp statement to make uh. and when revolutions in the air and the people are dissatisfied with Roman subjugation that's bearing down on them in a, in a way that's even more so than say Greek okay well that is a great summary of the history and the context leading up to the New Testament uh, maybe now we can shift over to talking about what are some examples of the way this informs our, our reading the New Testament and, and how we do ministry in the church today I think as we summarize these developments, going back to the Persian and Greek periods, the Persian and Greek periods, they were marked by military subjugation, but partial local autonomy for the Jewish people. Many Jews were content with this. They were happy to leave the larger matters of the empire in charge and focus more on local matters with temple authorities and the high priest. It's a pretty content situation. They still long for something more, but they were pretty content. The Hasmonean era was marked by achievements in political independence, national pride, and military autonomy. And so the question became, was this another David-like kingdom to be realized in Judea? But this national success was packaged together with these negative aspects of brutal leadership that just imitated their previous subjugators. So there had to be more to the Jewish state than what the Hasmoneans were offering. God's people already knew this story. Having a king just like the other nations was not the answer. Right. Yeah. So it didn't take long for the internal rivalries um, to, to support the opportunity for another empire to step in. So Rome became the new superpower in 63 BC. They ruled through the Herodian dynasty, client, client kings that had this ambiguous relationship to the Jewish people. And this started to taint the local autonomy. And Jewish identity felt more threatened than it had been in recent centuries, especially with the imperial cult. Rome used this idea of emperor worship to unite the world under the banner of Augustus. Like what made Rome so distinct was its ability to un to provide a unifying vision to their empire. And that, that tool and mechanism was the imperial cult. So as the Jewish people continued to assert monotheistic convictions, their resistance to emperor worship began to look and feel more like political resistance. So you had different parties develop in Judaism to navigate this tension. You had the Sadducees that compromised, the Essenes withdrew, the Zealots militarized. But Jesus of Nazareth cut a new path. I think that Scott McKnight says he cut a new path in these different visions of the kingdom and political backdrop. At the center of his public ministry was this declaration of the kingdom coming near and to repent and believe in this gospel. And it was one that was marked by a crucified king. And I think it just, it's, it, it 
cuts a new path for a lot of um, what the the political expectations of that time were. And it just, it, it's surprising while also resonant with a lot of expectations. You know what I'm saying? Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. A path that's not assimilation, um, but also not violent revolt. Yeah. That he finds another way to engage the powers of the day. Absolutely. That's, but still revolutionary. Uh-huh. Um, okay. So now let me ask you some questions about how that informs how we actually engage the New Testament in our in our learning, in our teaching, preaching, evangelism, whatever, you know, context we minister in, gifts we have. Um, so first, kind of a, in a general sense, you kind of alluded to this before. I have a couple of specific things I want to ask about, but in a general sense, how does knowing this historical and political background help us in our just general reading in the New Testament? Why is it important for us to know this stuff when we engage the text? Generally, it restores the edge of the passages. It, it, res- it restores the, the sharpness of certain prescriptions and stories. Like when Jesus is being questioned about whether to pay taxes to Caesar or not. Fair enough. Like this is a where do you align politically type of question. And he's kind of between a rock and a hard place there. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then Jesus's answer is all the more compelling. Like render to Caesar's what Caesar's and God what's God. Like he's saying really, he, he's making this appeal. There's a lot of things happening, but like who's really in power? Yeah. Like what is Caesar's and what is God's? You know, and he's, he's, providing this different theology or theological vision to apply to the political situation. Um, and so it just brings about that edge a little bit more uh-huh. um, for things. Or, um, you know, even in Paul's prescriptions to Rome, like when he says, um, pay your taxes and be a good citizen, submit to Rome. Other places he says, do your best to live a quiet life in like Thessalonians. I think that's about political engagement, living a quiet life. Mm-hmm. I think you realize like they were under Roman subjugation and there's probably not a ton that they could do about it. They're not in like a democra- democracy like we are. Like they don't have a, pol- a lot of political influence. They don't get to vote. They don't get to vote. <laughs> yes. Um, so what Paul is saying is like, look, yes, Rome's in power now. Do your best to kind of keep the status quo. Like I really think that that's Paul's wise discernment of the time. Um, he also talks about how Rome's day is uh, day of judgment is coming. Yeah. Like God will deal with the powers. For now, kind of sit quiet and don't disturb the peace too much. Like I think he's outright about that. But he also calls them out to say, um, you know, God's going to deal with them in their own way. Yeah. And that just understanding the political backdrop to that, right? Like they're a politically marginal community in the New Testament under a huge superpower uh, that have squashed revolutions already. It helps put those prescriptions in context so that we don't just recklessly apply them to our time today. Right. We're not under this crazy, you know, at least in America, I'll say that in America, we're not in that same political situation. And so I think what we should say is, would Paul say the same thing to us? Would he give the same political prescriptions to us Yeah. in our political situation? I don't know, right? And so we have to use wisdom and, and, and to discern that. Yeah. But at the same time, 
we can't just dismiss what he said because we're in a different context, right? We can't oh, say, absolutely. well, we are in a democracy, so we don't have to just submit to our governments. We get to <laughs> change them and, and you know, decide yeah. who's in power, kind of the stuff that we mm-hmm. talked with Gary Pauly about right. in the last right. episode. Um, so we can't dismiss it because of the context difference, but we uh-huh. also can't just uh, one for one automatically apply everything today uh-huh. without thinking about the difference in context. So kind of walking that center path. That's really good. Yeah. Because again, to kind of talk about the edge again and their sharpness, like something that comes through in Paul's prescription there um, in different places, and I'm leaning on Paul a little bit here just because he gives probably the most direct political prescriptions to the New Testament church. He also continually calls them to subvert Roman ideals uh-huh. and the political situations of the day. So I think it, it rises to the surface like some of the things that he he says about um, subverting political powers as well. Yeah. And that gives us another thing to bring into our day and to bring into our political context to like wisely discern how that applies to us as well. Yeah. And even thinking about the difference in context between Jesus and Paul, that Jesus is preaching in Israel to fellow Jews. Right. Paul's sending letters to to Roman, not just Roman colonies and cities, but to people living in the capital, in Rome. In I think Rome. sometimes we miss that, that when we're reading Romans, we forget like, like he's writing to the people that are at the center of this empire. Yeah. And yep. that's a different context than even, you know, Jesus in his context speaking to fellow Jews. So that's, that's really good. Yeah. And I think also at the same time, we can see this common kind of thread running through it all that even going back to like Jeremiah with the mm, exile mm. to Babylon, when he's sending, he sends a letter to the exiles and giving them advice, right? To, mm-hmm. hey, plant your gardens, build your houses, you know. Seek the welfare of the city. Seek the welfare of the city, yeah. That he's giving them advice of how do you exist uh, in the context of empire, but still remain loyal to to Yahweh and to um, to his people. So- that's all really good. I do think just generally speaking first, like a political theology or political navigation in the New Testament, um, there's a few things that I, I'm sensing and I'm still you know trying to form my conclusions, but uh-huh. I think some key things for the New Testament is that they, they continually point to a larger playing field than simply the political um, national stage. They point to powers beyond the particular power at the time. They point to supernatural powers. They point to, you know, the devil or um, evil spirits behind empire constantly. So they want to broaden the gaze beyond the the specific moment and situate everything that way. Um, And then I think secondly, like an alternative community in the church is probably the best place to start. Um, That sentence was a little backwards, but... The best place to start politically is by forming a politic in the church that reflects Jesus' lordship. I mean, you think about the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. You are a city on a hill. You are a polis on display. You are a politic that's supposed to witness to the world. Uh-huh. Right? Like, I think if you ground there and then uh-huh. you start to, like, answer some, okay, well, how do we interact with other politics or how do we interact with other cities? Um, you can start to get at it, but you got to start with 
this priority of the church itself as a politic, embodying a social life. Um, I think you see that throughout um, the whole New Testament, like this priority on thinking of ourselves as God's people embodying a new politic under King Jesus and then working from there. Yeah. And that reminds me of just if listeners want to push down that kind of stream of thought more. I know Stanley Hauerbos's, um Resident Aliens. Yeah. Uh, it's yeah. It, He's co-written with someone else. I'm forgetting the other guy's name at the moment. Williman? Maybe, yeah. I'm, I'm blanking on it. But um, he kind of really goes into that of the church as this alternative community, alternative society with, you know, a different ethic, different rules, different, you know, a place where we're inviting people out of what we could say with the empire, you know, of the world and into uh-huh. this, this other uh-huh. alternative way of life. Yeah. And, it's really yeah, good. and, and then we need to wisely discern the opportunities God's given us to be politically engaged in ways that the new Testament didn't have the opportunity. Like the new Testament yeah. church didn't yeah. have the opportunities that we do. Again, I'm speaking in America. Um, we yeah. need to wisely discern how to do that. And sure. the scripture is not going to give us a prescription on that. It gives us some maybe principles or a political theology, but, um, okay. So maybe a couple specifics before we wrap up. Um, how does this kind of background history uh, information of the political landscape of first century Palestine, how does it help, a, help us better understand the types of people that were following Jesus? So his disciples, how, how would they view themselves in kind of this um, political system? And I'm thinking specifically, yeah. you know, he attracts um, a tax collector <laughs> who's working for Rome. You know, he also attracts a zealot who yeah. had committed right. himself to, you know, dismantling Roman yeah. rule. So maybe you kind of go into that. What's the significance there? Yeah. I mean, just the, I mean, that's significant in and of itself that you have this diversity of people coming to Jesus, um, uh, but politically diverse, but what they're all seeking, I think is a common vision in some way of what the kingdom looks like. Um, at least in the Jewish Jewish world. I think, you know, the Sadducees thought that the kingdom would come um, at some point, but they were they were fine to kind of be in cahoots with Rome to some, to some extent. The Pharisees thought it would come about through radical Torah observance, right? Um, the Zealots thought it would come through their own military advancement. They all are seeking the kingdom, but they're seeking different ways that that kingdom would come about. Right. Um, and so Jesus saying the kingdom has come, I mean, it's going to flock, all those people are going to flock to him and, and start to to listen to what he has to say about that. Um, especially when you have things like his miracles are happening and his teaching is so profound. Sure. Um, like, oh, that coupled with his kingdom message, I think, drew in um, a wide range of people. Now, tax collectors, I think, uh, are are super interesting because... They were the epitome of like the picture to the Jewish people of Roman subjugation and how they're being exploited by the powers that be. Like tax collectors were basically hired by different entrepreneurs that um, were were um, hired by Roman authorities to collect the taxes that they were owed um, in the Jewish state. And these tax collectors we know were were exploiting people, taking more money than they needed to kind of sure, you know, put in their own pockets. 
And so that, the exploitation coupled with their link to Rome, just made them super despised characters in the New Testament. So when you see Jesus dining with these guys and also proclaiming the kingdom of God has come near, like it is, it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and it's confusing, which is why people are like, why, <laughs> why are you eating with <laughs> these people? I don't understand. Um, yeah. So it just, it kind of redeems some of the humanity of people's reactions in the gospels, I think. Yeah. And just the shock of the character of Jesus again um, and why he was such a influential figure as he was traveling around at that time. So he's attracting a lot of these people to him, you know, speaking about the kingdom of God, he tends to avoid the title Messiah himself, um, but is kind of beginning to fill that slot, uh, you know. Uh, And so he's attracting lots of people to him, but at the same time attracting a lot of negative attention from leaders um, that are in political power. And so maybe explain that. Why do they see him as such a threat? What other things would be going on in this time period that it would make them suspicious of Jesus? Yeah, I mean, right from the get-go, Jesus and Matthew is portrayed as, um, you know, the king of the Jews. He's portrayed as a politically threatening character. And so uh, what we know about Herod is he was pretty uh, he was pretty sensitive to power. Maybe a little paranoid? <laughs> he, killed, he was a paranoid, uh, yeah, beyond imagine. I mean, he, he killed so many people of his own family. Um it was just, you read about this, and he was a paranoid guy about power. And so the New Testament documents this uh, pretty pretty well in Matthew with his birth mm. and the slaughter of the innocents, but also um, in Luke. I mean, there's a point where um, another Herod starts to hear about Jesus, and uh, it says he, he sought, it, sought to kill him because he's a political threat. I mean, he's... Yeah. Yes, he didn't... Um, he didn't claim the title Messiah, but when people attributed it to him, he just said, well, be secretive, right? <laughs> he's like, don't, let's, let's be careful with how we start talking about me as the king. Yeah. You know, because he's got to get to the cross, basically. Yeah. That's what I think you see throughout the Gospels. Um, so he was a political figure uh, that was bringing about a political vision and so that, that threatened the political powers that be. So, the Herods, you know, people who are client kings of Rome, they see Jesus as a threat to that because they're ultimately their job is to maintain Roman control and maintain mm-hmm. peace. Right. Jesus is threatening that because he's gathering crowds, and he's got gaining influence. Uh-huh. So that that makes sense. But on the other side of the coin, you also have um, various priests and uh, teachers of the law, um, people that. Um, well, I guess the high, the high priests are also kind of functioning as clients of Rome, correct? Yeah, to a certain extent. Okay. But I guess my question is, uh, you also have resistance from them on the other side, um, teachers of the law, people that are in, um, you know, leadership in the temple. Um, what might they be, why would they see Jesus as a problem or a threat? Yeah, I think Jesus was a threat um to different pockets of Jews for different reasons. I think he was a threat to say the Pharisees because of his view of Torah 
like in his Torah interpretations, right? The Pharisees, they wanted to bring about the kingdom through Torah observance. That's a really simplified way to say it. But as Jesus was going out and interpreting Torah the way he was, it was a threat to their vision of the kingdom in breaking, right? Um, I think the Sadducees, they're also involved in some of this, or the temple state in general, I think they're threatened because Jesus is disrupting the current status quo that they had become comfortable with as client kings of Rome. Um, and while, you know, while there may have been some disagreement, uh, we know that some members of the Sanhedrin um, did follow Jesus, like Joseph of Arimathea. We know that some Pharisees followed Jesus. Um, that Luke, Luke makes that clear. And then later in Acts. So I think there's diverse opinions on this, but yeah, um, that's in terms of the Jewish authorities, I think they had similar, though different, reasons for opposing Jesus as well. Okay, that's a hot take. Yeah, <laughs> no, you're good. That's a that's a new question to, for me to think about. Yeah. But that's that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> and we don't always have access to motivations, right? We see their actions, but don't always know why they do what they do. But it definitely seems like Jesus is a threat to the powers that be in a general sense. And that yeah. culminates in him, you know, turning towards Jerusalem, saying, we're going there. Here's what's going to happen when we get there. I'm going to be yeah. rejected. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'm just going to rise again. But so it all culminates in his death, his trial, his death, um, this kind of political tension, right? Yeah. yeah. So... Help us understand that a little bit more. What's going on in these trial scenes? What's going on in the crucifixion? What's going on with Pontius Pilate? He's a really oh. interesting character. I know that's a lot, but yeah, any insights a... you have on any of those, you don't have to answer all those questions, but any insights you have there. Well, yeah, just recently going through the Passion Week, I mean, it just stuck out to me like, oh, you know, in order to get Jesus executed, the Jewish authorities have to start appealing to Roman power. Because they don't have the power in of themselves to execute Jesus. Right. They don't have that ability or that power. So it just made sense of like, oh, why are all these different trials happening? Why is this appeal to Pontius happening? You know, uh, it goes to the temple state first, right? And then it goes to, to Pilate. And they're trying to convince Pilate as to why he's a threat to social order. Yeah. Because that's the reason Pilate would execute him. So... It just made sense of that, which it wasn't a question I ever asked, uh, um, but it was a question I, um, I guess was the way to say, it. I just assumed like, yeah, that's just the way it worked. I don't know. Yeah. But it just kind of made sense of that. Um, I was trying to think of another part of your question. Um, well, oh, Jesus being crucified, I mean, we, we shouldn't lose sight of, that's a criminal's death in the eyes of the Roman state. Yeah. Like he's ultimately crucified um, as a, as an enemy of Rome. Yeah. Uh, and it's because the Jewish leadership at that time suggested that and handed him over for that, but it's for political disruption. Yep. It's for a disruption in society, um, which is, you know, for Pilate is an interesting character in all of that because he doesn't seem to be convinced, but he's like washes his hands of it. And then he allows Joseph of Arimathea to bury him, which is not like Roman criminals were not allowed to be buried. They were usually rotted on the cross. So, but Pilate allows Joseph to do that. 
So there's something interesting there. Yeah. Like, and if you, that's in Luke. And I think Luke, if you follow it into Acts, Luke makes a really profound case about um, Christians in the eyes of Rome. You know, and you go through the trials with Paul and stuff like that. Um, Kevin Rowe's book, World Upside Down, does a really good job of that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's really, again, it just brings some things into color. I think maybe we've been reading with grayscale and then you start to put some of these background contextual elements to it and it starts to come out in color. Yeah. And I think also remembering that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but crucifixion, it wasn't the, it wasn't just like the standard death penalty. Right. Um, it, it wasn't just, it wasn't just the way that you executed people back then. It was the way you executed people who were charged with treason. Right. Right. It was for specific crimes specific kinds of people, you know, Roman citizens couldn't be crucified, that it's like, it's a very specific kind of death. And there's a lot of, I think, political undertones there that we don't catch because we kind of just view it as, well, it's just the way Rome killed people. Well, that was like how they killed very specific people, political enemies, people that were um, subverting Rome's power. Those were the kinds of people because they wanted to make an example of them. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And again, we just don't we, uh, we don't think about that, but that's certainly the case to be made. And even even Christ's journey to the cross, um, I I, I want to kind of end here because I think this is the most profound thing that we lose if we don't put a political lens on it. With at the center of Jesus's enthronement is a cross, his political theology he's given his people. At the center of it is the cross. Even Mark, um, I forget the article that talks about this, but Mark documents Jesus's journey to the cross and some of the same movements that are used to talk about a Roman triumphal procession, like being robed, being crowned, being, you know, shouted out by the mobs, like King of the mm-hmm. Jews, but it's mockery in, in, in Mark. It's, it's following the same sequence of a Roman triumphal procession to after he's won the battle and he comes to be enthroned. Um, and, and for the gospel, for that politic, Jesus is saying the enthronement is the cross. Yeah. And it, that's that subversive element that is just so shocking and powerful. And, and at the center of it is the statement of, God's love is the most powerful thing in this universe. All empires think, you know, the most powerful weapon that empire can use is is death and war and killing. The sword is the most powerful weapon of empire. And for the gospel of Jesus, the most powerful weapon is the cross. That is an edge to the political um, picture of the New Testament. We cannot lose. Yeah. Right. You talk talk about the church and how it needs to engage today. The most powerful thing we can do today is pick up our cross, follow Jesus, and love people like he loved people. Yeah. It's our our most powerful political witness today. Yeah. And how, just to let that, I think, even sink in for, especially people in the modern West and specifically in America where you're at, that Jesus overcomes and is exalted when he gives up his rights 
Yeah. Right? Yeah, we can. Yeah. This is I mean, backwards. even just unpacking that statement for a modern American context would probably take a eight-week sermon series. But, like, <laughs> we talk so much about defending our rights. And, yeah. And, and I'm not giving, like, a blanket statement that there's sure. no place for, you know, that kind of activity. But just to think that the... <laughs> The moment of Jesus' exaltation is when he gives up his own rights for the sake of others. What would it look like if the American church took that mindset that when called upon, we're willing to give up our rights for the sake of others, Mm -hmm. for the sake of God's kingdom? I think that would be truly revolutionary. It would be revolutionary. It, It always has been, and I think it always will be. Taylor, do you have any resources for pastors, teachers, missionaries, um, people who want to engage in this more, any specific books that are helpful and kind of helping to fill out this picture of the political and historical landscape, um, Second Temple Judaism? I think um, some of my, my uh, the best books I read, um, N.T. Wright's New Testament and the People of God has a, a good section that summarizes some of the history. There's some great articles um, that's edited by Green, and I forget the other article, or the other author um, that had some good summary articles in it. The Dictionary of New Testament Background had some fantastic articles in it. Primary sources of the Maccabees and Josephus. Um, if you haven't read First and Second Maccabees, you should do that. Like it's, it's just a yeah. good, yeah. good practice. Um, I didn't do it. Yep. It took way too long for me to actually read those books. Um, and then there's probably the most accessible one that I mean, it's a simplistic kind of overview but it's it's good is seven events that shaped the new testament world by warren carter uh, okay it's it's accessible i could give that to somebody in my congregation and say if you want to know more about the kind of the new testament okay. uh, history that's probably the best one i would get right now good very yeah. good all right well thanks again taylor and thank you uh, listeners for engaging in the conversation with us thank you denver all right until next time Well, that concludes our episode for this week. Thanks again for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we hope you gleaned some some good insight for your ministry or your scholarship or hopefully both because it's really our goal here at The Learning Labors to create a space uh, where ministry experience and scholarship can overlap uh, in the lives of individual people like you. Uh, so we want to thank you for listening. We want to thank everyone who supports us and helps make the podcast possible. If you're interested in supporting our efforts, check out our Patreon link in the show notes where you can sign up to join us for as little as $3 per month. It's our prayer that through this content, more laborers in the fields of ministry can feel resourced to point their people to Jesus through their study of scripture. So continue to tune in wherever you listen to podcasts.